0: burn at getsmartburn.com the lowest price anywhere that's getsmartburn.com don't delay transform your life with smart metabolic burn from brain md these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration our products are not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent
1: any disease this is your moment your time to shine your comeback Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life, you know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+.
2: Holy Human with Leanne Rhimes is a production of iHeartRadio. For most of us, the self-care, self-healing thing doesn't exactly come naturally. It took me hitting a pretty dark time in my life to realize and accept that I had to find a better, kinder, more sustainable way to live my life. My guest today can definitely relate and in an incredibly pragmatic, relatable way. Get ready as we talk about all the voices in our heads and some self-help that actually works. Dan Harris is the man behind the successful and incredibly supportive 10% Happier website, podcast, and best-selling book. And I am 100% happier to have him on my Holy Human podcast. Welcome to the show. Dan Harris. I have to say, this is probably my most nerve wracking interview. I think I've done nine of them so far. And I'm like, Oh, shit, how do I interview the interviewer?
3: (laughs) Ah, I am. I'll I'll take it easy on you.
2: Okay, please do. That would be great.
3: You You should make me sing.
2: Okay. Well, we might get to that by the end of this. You never know. Oh no. I, I'm just so interested cause I, you know, this is like I said, very new to me on this side of, of the coin. And I know you obviously are very proficient in one side of it. And I think the other now after doing so many interviews, I'm sure. And do you have a favorite side of the coin of the interviewer or interviewee? <laughs>
3: Uh, you know, in some ways, it's actually easier to be interviewed than it is to interview. Interviewing is hard. It, and I, I'm, I'm sure you're yes, <laughs> you're seeing that now because like you, I host a podcast. You've been a guest on my podcast and you want to make sure you're drawing people out and making them comfortable and also serving the listener. And you're constantly thinking of mm-hmm. like, what's your next question? But how do I listen to this person while they're talking? And totally. it's it's a lot.
2: I was just explaining that to my husband last night. I was like, there's a really interesting part about your listening. For me, I intuitively want to, if I hear something that takes me down a certain road, like I, I'm just listening for key words. At the same time, if I listen too hard, it's almost like I stop listening because it all of a sudden just becomes these jumbled words. And then all of a <laughs> sudden I'm thinking of what question am I going to ask them? So yeah, it's a new language that I am learning and it's, um, it's quite fascinating. Because I've been on the other side for so long, so I greatly respect what you do more so than ever have I, I think, really respect the journalism side of things more so than ever. So yeah, it's a it's a new thing.
3: <laughs> you know what's helped me, and I'll say this and, you know, you can use it or not, but um, is to prepare mm-hmm. a little bit and have like a, a rough list of questions. And then when I get into the interview, completely drop it and just oh, listen to what they're saying and and go with whatever the interviewee has said and react to it. Mm-hmm. And then if, if they've said something that doesn't take me anywhere, I can look down at my list then. Right. But So I've done enough preparation so that I don't need to be th- constantly plotting what my next question is. Right. And then right. also to keep a pen and paper handy, because often my interviewee will say 17 things I want to follow up on. Totally. <laughs> and instead of trying to hold them all in my mind, I just kind of write them down quickly and yeah. then con- consult the list later.
2: Yeah, those are great. I actually, I feel like I do the first one fairly well. And this is the second one. I've never had a pen handy. And I start to go through like, oh, that and that and that. And then I just Mm -hmm. lose it all. You're so right about that. Well, thank you for those wise words. I greatly appreciate them. You know, (laughs) you said I was on your podcast and I have to say that was probably one of the favorite interviews that I've ever had, because I believe that that was probably the first time that I ever got to speak about meditation in a public forum. And it has it's changed my life tremendously. I just want to thank you for that opportunity because I kind of felt like I was coming out for me. I don't want to get into this with you, but for me, meditation has been a very spiritual journey and it was kind of like coming out of my own spiritual Mm. closet in a way to Mm. do your podcast. (laughs) So yeah, thank you for providing everything that you have with your 10% Happier app, your books, your sharing your own journey with meditation because I think it's I know for my own self, you've opened a lot of doors for me. So thank you for that.
3: I appreciate that. Um, I remember having you on, and I remember trying to figure out why you seem so excited to talk about this because, <laughs> you know, i every guest on my show was talking about this stuff. and And then you explained to me afterwards that, like nobody had ever asked you these questions, yeah. And, yeah, it was, I didn't feel like I did anything particularly skillful, but it was, I'm glad that I was there at the right time.
2: Yeah, it was definitely a, a right moment, kind of divine timing for me kind of thing where I was like, oh, this is something new to talk about. And I loved mm-hmm. it. So you mm-hmm. have really become kind of the, I would say the face of practical meditation. And before I spiral down all things meditation with you, I just wondered if you could walk people through your journey. What led you? To finding meditation, your personal experience.
3: Sure. I'll try to tell the story reasonably briefly, um, just because if people have heard me interviewed before or yeah, know anything about absolutely. me, they might have heard this story. So I'll, I'll tell the a brief version, and if you have follow ups, I'm happy to say more about any of it. Sure. But um, I had a panic attack on an obscure ABC News broadcast called Good Morning America. Um, <laughs> with 5 million people watching, Um, and this was back in 2004, so it was a while ago, and after I had the panic attack, I went to a a shrink to try to figure out what had happened, and um, he asked me a bunch of questions, and one of the questions was, do you do drugs? Mm -hmm. And I sheepishly admitted that I did do drugs. Uh, I had spent um, a lot of time in war zones as a very ambitious young network correspondent you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Palestine, Israel, and uh, had come home in the middle of that period and gotten depressed, although I didn't actually know I was depressed. And then I started to self medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. I was in my early 30s and I'd never done hard drugs before. So this is phenomenally. Stupid. That's a plus. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a great thing you made it that far.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, but not a great thing that I started. No, um, no, no. And the doctor was explained that even though I my drug use career was pretty unspectacular, it, was not, it wasn't like I was high on the air and I wasn't doing it that often, but it was enough, mm. this guy explained, to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for me to freak out. And so that kind of set me off on a big winding journey that I wrote about in a book called 10% Happier that ultimately landed me on meditation. And mm-hmm. I was pretty hostile to meditation. I was down with therapy. I mean, I, I, I did a bunch of therapy after the panic attack to help me figure out how not to do that again and also to get off drugs. But I, I was not I just thought meditation was just, you know, the apex of hippie, dippy. Bullshit. Um, and then I started to see the science that suggests, you know, I'm I'm my parents are both uh, mm-hmm. academic physicians. I'm married to a scientist, uh, so I'm not good at math. So I, I became a, a news <laughs> anchor, but I respect science. And I saw all this research and uh, that suggested that meditation had profound psychological impact. That was really good for anxiety and depression, both of which I've been struggling with since I was very young. And also that has all these physiological impacts, you know, lowered blood pressure, reduced release of cortisol, the stress hormone, and that it changes the structure of your brain. Mm -hmm. And that was just super compelling to me. So I I started to do it about five to ten minutes a day, and I saw a real difference in my life. And then I, you know, because I'm a crass, craven, Western materialist, you know, totally monetized it and wrote a book about it and blah, blah, blah. (laughs)
2: That has helped a lot of people. So let's not leave that part of it out. <laughs> I love that you're honest about that. too. too, there's always that there's always two sides of the coin, right? You mentioned the word ambition. I find myself to be an incredibly ambitious person also. And I was just wondering that ambitious drive for you going back into you know you having these panic this panic attack on national television that ambitious drive can you talk a little bit about the the quote unquote, light and dark side of that ambitious drive. And I've heard you talk a lot about the the inner critic that you found when you started to dig into the kind of shadowier sides for yourself. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I'm wanting to, to talk about a little bit is that inner critic and how that ambitious drive has driven that, that piece for you.
3: Just so I can tailor my answer to make it maximally useful. Do you want to start by talking about like, is, is ambition okay? And can you do sure. that while being, a, you know, a reasonably decent person?
2: Yeah, I definitely would love to get there
3: Okay. sure.
4: <laughs> okay. Yes.
3: Because I have a lot of thoughts about that. I mean, there's actually yeah. in some ways the issue I was trying to unpack when I wrote that first book because I, I, I'm really ambitious, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I got the sense, it was becoming increasingly obvious to me the more I looked into my own mind through meditation that the ambition was making me miserable. And mm-hmm. so but I didn't want to like move to the Himalayas and sit on a outcropping <laughs> of rock and a loincloth. Right. I was just trying to figure out, like, can you be ambitious without being miserable or a dick? <laughs> and I think the answer is absolutely <laughs> yes. What I learned in the course of writing that book and talking to all these amazing meditation teachers and also just more importantly, doing the practice for myself, is mm-hmm. that there's a certain amount of worrying and plotting and planning that is part of trying to do anything, right? Right. Um, You're starting a new podcast, so there's going to be some conversations about how do we build an audience and get the word out and all of that. That's just completely natural. Mm -hmm. However, we can take it too far and lose sight of, Enjoying doing the actual thing or trying to help people through doing the actual thing because we're so caught up in the worry about what are the latest numbers on downloads and can we bully? X or Y into writing a big piece about us or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm not less talking about you now that I'm talking about myself because I also have a <laughs> podcast and it's like, how do I get the word out about it? And, you know, I, I check the numbers obsessively and I look at my Amazon rank of my book and it's like my own personal stock market and I can see, you know, what <laughs> whether I'm up or down and it drives me nuts. And yeah. so a certain amount of that makes sense. And then at some point you cross over into diminished returns. Mm -hmm. What mindfulness or meditation does is it helps you have enough self-awareness to notice, okay, I'm firmly in not useful territory right now. Right. And it's making me miserable and it's making me unpleasant to the people around me. And it's more art than science and you will mess up all the time, but it gives you some tools to manage this because it's totally fine to be ambitious, Mm -hmm. but you just don't want to again lose sight of the positive motivations and to let it overtake you in such a way that you are, you know, not having fun in your life, which is, by the way, limited and we should enjoy what we've got.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've found that for myself. I, you know, I started so young and there was a time, a good significant piece of the 25 years I've been in this business where I definitely lost joy for what I did. And mm. I think. These past probably eight years of my life is about returning to that joy and returning to what is the deeper purpose for me of why I do what I do. And it's not about, you're right, it's not about numbers. All of those things are wonderful if they happen, but that's not what I feel like I'm here to do. And really coming home to that purpose and, like you're saying, getting to know with meditation for me that it's been a practice of putting some space between this inner critic in my own head, which I thought, I thought that was what drove me. Like if I don't have that voice in my head, then I will not be the same ambitious person that I have always been. And there are some days I still believe that. Um, And other days where I have been able to start to cultivate my own a a different voice Mm. that's more compassionate. I mean, Mm -hmm. do you, and I believe her, I believe her a lot more than I do him. And I say him because I've actually named my inner critic. His name is Tubby. (laughs) (laughs) He looks like the Michelin man.
3: Say, Is that like an overweight poodle you had as a child?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, but um, yeah, somewhat similar. It's like Tubby is a guy like the Michelin man. That's like that big marshmallow dude. And he He loves to just berate me with, you know, I'm not good enough. Anything that I'm not good enough. And I'm, you know, I mean, I think that I really had to put enough space between that inner critic and myself to be able to even start this podcast or Mm. else I would have never even thought twice about doing this. So I was, have you, does that voice still get to you and have you been able to, like myself, to try to or start to craft a new voice for yourself that's more compassionate?
3: Yes and yes. So absolutely my inner, I got a bunch of inner characters. You know, this, by the way, (laughs) this may sound a little schizoid to folks who are new to this, but this is not, we're not out on a limb here. It's well established and psychological circles that, it, it, you know, you you can have different kind of programs or modes in mm-hmm. your mind that are kind of competing for the top spot, the most salience um, at any given moment. So you can have a jealous mode or an angry mode or a sad mode or a victim mode or whatever. And so for sure, I've got several difficult modes. The one is kind of, you know, the self-critical mode. The other is very ambitious, kind of hustler Mode, and then of course lots of positive ones too. And boy, I have a lot to say about this, um, so I'll try to not say no. All please, once <laughs> bore you, but um, I think having a different relationship to the critic doesn't mean that you are going to slide into sloppy resignation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't try to see yourself clearly and think about when you've made mistakes. It's just a question of what is the attitude and tone in your mind as you go about that mm-hmm. there is a ton of research and you know here we are sliding into a new year uh, where a lot of people are creating resolutions et cetera. Et cetera. and there's a t- and, and why do those resolutions fail so fast usually by the end of the week because <laughs> they usually come from a place of insufficiency self-hatred self-loathing shame There is a ton of research that shows that if you can come from a different place, which is around self-compassion, you will be more likely to stick to your goals. Mm -hmm. And self-compassion doesn't need to be irretrievably sappy it doesn't need to have string music and white light or anything (laughs) like that it's unhelpful if you think about it that way because then it sounds impossible or maybe unwise or just ridiculous when i talk about self-compassion and when the the researchers who've led the charge on understanding how to practice self-compassion and what it does to the mind when they talk about it it's more like a skosh north of neutral. It's just mm-hmm. like this basic wanting of the best for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I have increasingly come to think of that habit of mind, of counterprogramming against Tubby with right. a different voice as the uber habit. Because if you can establish a new habit of the way you talk to yourself,
2: mm-hmm.
3: All other habits, like your six-pack abs or your larger 401k or whatever it is, (laughs) can flow out of that. Mm -hmm. But if you start with, yeah, I'm going to get the abs or I'm going to get out of debt uh, immediately, then if it's coming from a place of self-laceration and shame, when you hit roadblocks, which you inevitably will, you're reducing your own resilience because – you're just going to be miserable. Yeah. And then it's hard to stick to something. Whereas if you come from a place of, yeah, I want the best for myself, then it's like having a good coach in your ear as opposed to somebody, a, a, a drill sergeant.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think you just hit on to something that I think is really important, wanting the best for ourselves. I mean, the the core for me of of that inner critic and thinking that I've constantly got to berate myself is because I felt like I wasn't good enough. Yes. And so that piece of self-worth is where I feel like I had to first look at my beliefs around, am I worthy Mm. of care and nurturance and love? Simple things, simple, basic needs. Are my needs worthy of being met? And am I worthy of being happy? And when I really sat and thought about my beliefs around that, I think when I was very honest with myself, no my core belief of that was that I was not. Hmm. And when I started to change that belief, and I'm still working with that, I honestly don't even know <laughs> how that began to change. I think it was probably for me, my environment, the people around me, the kindness that was reflected back to me, the the love, especially with my husband, the love, that insecurity that I felt tethered to with him. And to have your, my environment reflect back a different story, all of a sudden started to change that belief for me of I am worthy. I am worthy of love. And then all of a sudden I was able to connect with a new voice, a new way of speaking to myself. And by the way, this is still very new to me like i still have to catch myself going in and with the energy of you have to change and shaming myself around things but as soon as i catch myself that awareness all of a sudden gives me an opportunity to shift into something different so yeah i think that that self-worth piece is a is a huge piece and i wonder what that journey has been like for you as far as self-worth We'll get more Dan Harris wit and wisdom when we return from this quick break.
5: Any disease.
1: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parish, from my new series, Parish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm retired from life. You know that. His business is failing. His house is going up for sale. He is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job we got a lot of action in this show we have moments of real danger and we want to feel as if anything could happen gray is invited to drive for this man he's invited to make money and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do i did what you told me to and he's in a world over his head now let's go he will try to do what's right and seek justice all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+.
2: Welcome back, loves. We were just on the topic of self-worth.
3: I I think it's very useful what you just said about work in progress aspect of it, because Mm -hmm. I I could imagine people listening to this and being like, all right, Rhymes and Harris, you guys are like (laughs) rich and already successful. And um,
2: Rhymes and Harris, I like that. Sounds like a duo. (laughs)
3: It's a daytime show. (laughs) Um, You know, like you guys got it all figured out and blah, blah, blah. But no, in fact, what you said was, you can feel the shift in the right direction Mm -hmm. and you still, the old voices still come back. And the old voices will always come back. It's more just like, can you view the foundational shift in how you view yourself at least some of the time with some more warmth? And then over time, can you start to view Tubby with some warmth? Mm. You know, even just naming him Tubby is a great first step. Mm -hmm. I'm writing a book right now that is um, kind of a, I'm, I'm being uh, pretty ambitious and writing about the <laughs> not small subject of love. Oh, wow. Trying to hopefully, helpfully define love down a little bit and not the grandiose stuff of movies and country songs, but more <laughs> like just, you know, again, this basic capacity we all have to care as mammals. -hmm. Because of our extended childhood, like we need, we're we're wired to care for others uh, because that's how the species has survived. Mm -hmm. And we have to work cooperatively, et cetera, et cetera. You can harness this toward yourself. And I think actually you can start to develop warmth, which is maybe a more user friendly word than love, toward Tubby, toward Mm -hmm. the difficult characters in your own mind, because fighting them, Or feeding them or pretending they don't exist are three Mm -hmm. habitual strategies of, you know, like giving in, struggling or numbing out. Mm -hmm. None of those is particularly useful. And we have this notion in the West in particular of like slaying the dragon. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think hugging the dragon. Right. (laughs) And I'm just kind of playing with this idea as I talk about this next book. I've even thought about calling the book Hug the Dragon. Um, I love that. <laughs> hugging the Dragon is radical disarmament. Mm-hmm. Because you're not you're not saying, Tubby, you're right. You're saying, Tubby, uh, I get that this is a self-protective mechanism I developed somewhere along the way. And Tubby's trying to help Leanne. yeah, But unskillfully. Yeah. And so thank you. You've done great work. I see you popping up right now. But I I can invite you into the party, give you a hug. But Leanne's grown up, and I can make a wiser decision right now than the one you would have me make. So to me, that process in my own mind of seeing—I call my inner critic Robert, right, named after my grandfather, who once <laughs> told me that he would break my arm if I touched his VCR. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so uh, so Robert pops up, and it's like, oh. Okay, so I, I, I there are a couple of ways I could go right now. I could just start screaming because that's what Robert wants me to do. I could f- shame myself for having an inner Robert at all, or I could mm-hmm. pretend it's not there. None of those is likely to work, but I could give Robert a big hearty high five and, you know, s- give him a seat at the table and, and, and thank him for trying to protect me. You know, maybe he's trying to protect me. I, I sometimes think about... This kid, John, who uh, I was online uh, at the water cooler after a basketball game in seventh grade, and John came (laughs) over and uh, wanted my space in line, and I told him no, and he punched me in the stomach and took it. And, like, (laughs) I think at that point, I'd said, you know, nobody's going to fuck with me again, and, like— it, hence Robert. And so right. Robert's tr- trying to protect the kid who's doubled over at the water cooler, but I'm not that anymore. And I don't need to lash out the the way I might have needed to back then. And mm-hmm. same with Tubby and you. Um, mm-hmm. And that warmth, I think, is, for me, has been key.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Can you speak a little bit on, like, where do you feel these voices actually originate from? These negative voices. Just for people listening, because I can see people going like, well, why do I have this voice in the freaking first place?
3: I think they're self-protective mechanisms.
2: You mentioned Robert. We don't come into this world with these voices necessarily. I don't feel like we do. I think it can be our environment. Um, You know, I mean, I mentioned my environment earlier being very different and reflecting something very different Mm. back to me now. And my environment when I was a child was very different than it is now um, and was reflecting this reality that had me create this defensive mechanism. It's interesting, our earlier influences are so, and influencers really do, uh, that's basically, I think, who and what we're hearing um, and what, why we created these defense mechanisms in the first place.
3: As I understand it from having, you know, we referenced that I have, a podcast and so I get all these experts in human psychology and flourishing mm. and happiness as I understand it from having spoken to many 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 of these people and done a lot of reading and research into this my understanding is that this it, it happened that we develop these sort of inner characters these inner modes in response to experience just the way you've described that we armor up in particular the negative modes Mm -hmm. come from getting punched in the stomach or having people, I don't know exactly what was happening with you, but maybe you had people pushing you to succeed at an Mm -hmm. age when you might have needed different messages and you armor up uh, to protect yourself. And I also think, you know, we may be born to a certain extent with some of these voices in that. You know, there's this concept of intergenerational trauma that, you know, right. even the grandchildren of people who survived Auschwitz have, you know, pronounced anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. you know, you wherever they come from in response to experience or as a consequence of genetics, they're there. And just to know that they are trying to help you is really useful because it takes the shame and antagonism out of it. Mm-hmm. And can put you in a position where your orientation toward your tendencies, your habits, your your habits of mind is a little bit friendlier, which is a much better way to work with them.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier that your parents were scientists. Were you raised with a specific religious background at all?
3: Uh yes it's called atheism. Um Wonderful. Uh, my <laughs> <Cheers>. <laughs> uh, I remember my mom we did Christmas and, and Hanukkah cuz my my dad was Jewish my mom's Christian but um <laughs> uh I remember my mom like kind of telling me in one fell swoop I might be making this up but it's true enough that not only is there no Santa Claus, but there's also no God. Something to that effect. Um, Thanks, Mom. <laughs> I did have a bar mitzvah, but only because I wanted the money and to fit in with my other Jewish friends. <laughs> so I was yeah. raised pretty secular. Um, mm. I think my dad might have a little bit of a more openness to uh, the metaphysical than my mom. But um, certainly there wasn't any any real spiritual any legit spirituality in the home. Um, I, over time, have developed a more sort of friendly agnosticism. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a God right. and or if the stories in the various, you know, religions are true. I, I I don't know. And I'm not hostile toward them as long as they're not being used to hurt other people. Right. Um, and um, in particular, now, I would call myself a Buddhist. Um, mm. But that kind of means more and less than, than it might seem like. Less in that, like, I don't consider, I I know Buddhism is a religion and I respect that, but Mm -hmm. it can also be practiced as just not something, uh, uh, one of my favorite expressions about Buddhism is that it's not something to believe in, it's something to do. And the Buddha himself said, look, I'm going to make a few metaphysical claims about enlightenment and reincarnation, but you you should not take them at face value. Only believe in them once you've got evidence for yourself and, you know, in, in the form of your meditation practice. And so for me, I I have not seen any evidence for rebirth. And that doesn't bar me from being a Buddhist, though, because I do Buddhism in the form of meditation and trying to live an ethical life, just the way I I do journalism. So I am a journalist. I'm more open now than I was as a younger person, but I definitely come from a background of like, show me the evidence before I'm going to sign on.
2: Right. Where does belief and and trust come into that, into play?
3: (laughs) Well, you can get some trust and faith in the... Power of meditation practice mm-hmm. you can develop some trust and faith and faith in your inherent worth and goodness and mm-hmm. that of other people, no matter how many heinous things we or other people do um so there's a sort of evidence based trust like I trust this chair i'm sitting in right um <laughs> that isn't the same as me saying that I'm going to believe I'll take a metaphysical claim from Buddhism rather than pick on some other religion that, you know, (laughs) if I transgress right now, I'm going to be reborn as a Gila monster. Like, I don't know that maybe that's the truth, um, (laughs) but I don't know that that's the truth. And so I have like a willing suspension of disbelief, but I'm not going to pound the table and say it's definitely true. But that to say, I have a lot of friends who are People of deep and abiding faith, and I've spent a lot of time as a reporter covering mm-hmm. spirituality and faith and um made a lot of friends in that process um and they are people who really believe the word uh, words of the Bible are literally true, et cetera, et cetera. and that's all good with me, and I don't have any diminished respect for people who are in that position. It's just not the way I'm wired,
2: right. Spending your time covering so much spirituality and and religion, is there someone that you can think of that's the one person who's really made an impact on you and that field? yeah, in that realm?
3: well, in the realm of spirituality, there are countless people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know i'll I'll just pick one person uh, who I mock a lot in my <laughs> book and feel free to mock to this day, but have to say that he had a huge, huge life-changing impact on me, and that is Eckhart Tolle, Mm -hmm. who you may have heard of. He's a mega best-selling self-help writer. (laughs) Uh, A colleague of mine, way before I started meditating, recommended I read one of Tolle's books because she thought it would be a good story for me. And Mm -hmm. I read one of his books, and at first I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. It's filled (laughs) with all of this (laughs) pseudoscientific language and... Again, for somebody wired like me and raised as I was in the People's Republic of Massachusetts by these, you know, f- <laughs> physicians, you know, it's just like that whole jargon of vib- vibrational fields and blah, blah, blah. Like, And he claims that he had a spiritual awakening after which he lived on park benches in a state of bliss in the city yeah. of London for two years. And <laughs> I was just like, this is garbage. But I, st- I kept reading it and totally was the first person I ever heard. Talk about the notion that we all have a voice in our heads. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might refer to it as voices. And again, not in a sort of mental illness way, but in a sense that we have this inner conversation that's happening all the time for us. That if we broadcast aloud, we'd be locked up. Um, Right. But most of us are unaware that look, we're having this conversation.
2: And look at us broadcasting it aloud. Yes, exactly. So
3: <laughs> uh, I could see that we're going to get frog marched out of our homes in any minute. Uh, and, yes. it, it, and when you're unaware, Tolly's argument is, when you're unaware of this nonstop conversation that you are having your, with yourself, like constantly thinking about the past or the future or comparing yourself to people or judging yourself, this whole blah, blah, blah that's happening in your head, when you don't see it clearly, which most of us don't, mm-hmm. Then it owns us. You know, we're checking our email in the middle of a conversation with, you know, another person or we're eating when we're not hungry or we're losing our temper when it doesn't make any sense. And that is suffering. And so mm. for all of Tolley's sort of foibles, um, he was the first person to point that out to me. I later realized that that whole notion was taken largely without attribution from somebody called the Buddha. Um, right. <laughs> but Tolle writes about this very well, very incisively and insightfully. Mm. And I don't think as as wild as some of his claims are about his own spiritual attainments, having met him, I'm open to the possibility that he is not making that up.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love, I love that about you. I love that you keep your mind open to the possibility. And I think that's, for me, kind of where I'm at, too. And Although I can be very woo-woo and very spiritual, and partly, I gosh, I, I feel like it's my own my own experiences um, and what I feel. Um, and I also am very open to being completely wrong. <laughs> 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 and I think as long as we keep the both sides of the coin you know open that that we I think for myself, it's just life becomes more interesting and I get to explore that exploration, I feel like, is what life is all about.
3: Well, just just to back you up, probably the most influential person I've met in the whole re- realm of spirituality is a guy named Joseph Goldstein, who is mm. my meditation teacher. He and I, along with some other folks, co-founded a meditation app called 10% Happier. But
2: Which is awesome.
3: Joseph. Oh, thank you. I love it. Joseph is, um, he's been meditating for 50 years. Mm. He is not at all what you would think. He's not at all like Eckhart Tolle. He's way, way goofier. You know, Tolle basically says he never gets into a bad mood. Joseph right. is like a much more of a normal guy who like gets into bad moods and whatever. But he's this brilliant kid who graduated from an Ivy League school, went off to the Peace Corps, found himself in Thailand and 50 years ago, and then directed his big brain at Buddhism instead of becoming a lawyer, which he probably would have done. And it is so interesting to see what 50 years of sustained practice can do to a mind. Because I've Mm. seen Joseph in so many different scenarios. We're now, you know, business partners in a way. He's also my meditation teacher. We're also friends. I've, you know, spent time with him in very loose social environments. I've spent, I've been on meditation retreats with him. I've been in, I've worked with him. He's never disappointed me. That's not to say he's never gotten annoyed by something or anything like that. But he is just such a high quality human being. And yet, he believes in all sorts of stuff that I think I have, like, no idea how he got there. You know, he has a meditation teacher who he believed had supernatural powers, like Mm -hmm. walking through walls. He believes in lots of the stuff from the Buddhist cosmology about there being several layers of existence. Like, there's the realm that we all inhabit, but then there's also, like, a, a... god realm and a hell realm and he once quoted one of his teachers who said something to the effect of you don't have to believe this but it's true (laughs) and and like that's joseph's attitude he he describes this willing suspension of disbelief
5: Mm -hmm.
3: where he doesn't bring the skeptical western materialistic mind to these things he he just believes that they're true and We have fought about it and I've made fun of him mercilessly and so I I say all that to say that it's very hard for me to dismiss that capacity that you described in your own mind to be as you said woo-woo. I I can be dismissive about it because I'm a bit of a judgmental jerk sometimes but when I'm at my best I, I maintain a sense of openness.
2: All right in just a few moments we'll be back with how you can break open to that sense of openness too.
5: Any disease.
1: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my character, Gray Parrish, from my new series, Parrish. Yeah, I can drive. My character was a getaway driver.
0: Yeah!
1: I'm retired from life, you know that. His business is failing, his house is going up for sale, he is the everyman. Tell me about this driver job. We got a lot of action in this show. We have moments of real danger and we want to feel as if anything could happen. Gray is invited to drive for this man. He's invited to make money and he quickly realizes this is not the right thing to do. I did what you told me to. And he's in a world over his head. Now, let's go. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC Plus.
2: All right, we are back, and we were just talking about how to keep an open mind. I guess this can be a good thing and a bad thing, quote-unquote good and bad, um, where the the mind will always question what even if we've had the deepest experience, at least for me, like that inner critic, even going back to like the goodness I feel when I when I do feel like you're saying at your best and you love yourself and you feel connected. There's always this other piece of me that's like, but that's not true, that that's not real, (laughs) you know, and that's the thing I've had to get in touch with. And and I still even question the question. You know, it's almost like I'm questioning the voice in my head and thinking, is that question bad? There's many layers to that. And I usually, as just for me, have always gone with, you know, my own experiences are my own truth. And I think we all have our own truths at the end of the day. We're all unique human beings walking around in this world. We can be the only ones experiencing what we are experiencing. And because of all of our past experiences leading up to the point we are in, we're all going to see a different truth. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: For me, I've learned not to, and that's been another thing of coming back to my own self-worth, knowing not to question so much my own truth and allowing that to be. It is what it is in that moment.
3: I had a thought when you were talking about sort of second-guessing yourself and having a Mm -hmm. little voice that pops up. Maybe this will be helpful for those moments. We were just talking about Joseph Goldstein. He's got this great little phrase that he uses called cowboy dharma. (laughs) Um, And it basically is a very playful idea that when you see the inner critic pop up or, you know, shame or anger at yourself, can you just kind of gently just like a (laughs) cowboy but it's not like firing a gun at it. It's not hostile. It's more like a Nerf gun, and it's more like a fun thing. Like, oh, I see you, because you don't need to deal with it too much. Yeah. You don't need to get caught in a whole loop around. Why is that voice coming up? And right. what's it trying to say? It's just like no, 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 no. It's just more like, Pew, and move on. Keep I it moving. That. So use your mindfulness, your, yeah. your which we're training in meditation, this ability to like be self aware to say, oh, I see you, I see you, Tubby. And then you don't need to start wrestling with it or thinking too much about it.
2: Yeah, no, that's so funny. That's so true. And my, I have 2 stepsons, and my youngest is now 13, but he used to walk around the house. He still does it, actually, every once in a while, playing outside by himself. He'll go pew, 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 pew. <laughs> and so, yes, I'm totally using that. Now. Meditation, you know, we've talked about, both of us, how much has changed our lives. Uh, you take a very grounded approach to meditation, and... I think one of the the main reasons people have shied away from it for so long is because they think it's woo-woo and because they think it's, you know, this hippie, whole hippie, hippie nation like thing to do. What would you say to people if they're listening and are still feeling that way and don't see the grounding in and the worth in having a meditation practice, even if it's just for a few minutes a day?
3: I would say, I hear you. You're my people. I mean, the skeptics like that's <laughs> I love I got you. Um, And I felt that way for a long time to the extent that I even thought about meditation. um, I thought it was nonsense. And so, I mean, it might be useful for me to just describe what it is.
2: Yeah, um, I would love because
3: that. I think once you hear it described, it, it will seem a lot less fluffy. Yeah. Just to say before I dive in on that, that the word meditation is a little bit like the word sports. It like describes a whole range. There are millions of kinds of meditation. <laughs> but when I talk about meditation, I'm generally talking about mindfulness meditation, which is derived from Buddhism, but is stripped of any metaphysical claims or religious lingo. And it is this form, this secular form of meditation that has been studied in the labs very, very extensively for roughly the past 20 years. So there's now a really significant body of evidence that strongly suggests that it can confer a whole long list of physiological and psychological and even behavioral changes and benefits. So beginning mindfulness meditation is really simple. You just, there are three steps. One is to kind of sit comfortably. You don't have to fold yourself up into a pretzel. I'm nearly (laughs) 50 and do not like yoga so i do not sit on the floor in a cross-legged position which you know if you can great i sit in a chair sometimes i lie down if i'm really sleepy and i'm worried about falling asleep i'll stand up Mm -hmm. although if you fall asleep it's like not a big deal so anyway the first step is just find a reasonably comfortable position in a reasonably quiet place if you have no access to quiet this is why the good lord invented noise canceling headphones (laughs) um so Again, step number one, reasonably quiet place, reasonably comfortable, dignified position, lying up, lying down, standing, sitting down, whatever. Step number two is to just bring your full attention to something. So usually it's the breath. You pick one spot where you feel your breath most prominently, like the rising and falling of your belly or of your chest, air coming in and out of your nose. Some people find the breath to be anxiety provoking. So if that's you, you can just pick something else like the feeling of your full body sitting. Or whatever your hands are touching at the moment. Sounds in your environment. Just pick something that's below the level of thinking. Because that's what we're trying to do here. We're Mm -hmm. trying to drop below the nonstop nattering of our minds to something that has to do with our senses. Uh, Again, the feeling of the body sitting or the breath rising and falling at the belly, whatever. You're just picking something and committing to it. And then the third step is the most important because as soon as you say, okay, I'm just going to feel my breath for a couple of minutes, your mind will go nuts. I mean, you'll just start thinking (laughs) about what's for lunch does Leanne like me? What kind of dog is that? I'm going to need to get a dog. And, and 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 you know when is this quarantine going to be over? And you know uh, where did gerbils run wild? And what was Casper the Friendly Ghost before he died? And blah blah blah. And that's totally natural. Right. Like that is what the mind does. The mind's job is to secrete thoughts, the way the stomach secretes enzymes. So you the goal here is not to clear your mind because that's impossible. Mm-hmm. unless you're fully enlightened or you have died. Right. The goal here is to focus the mind for a few nanoseconds at a time on something like the sensations of your breath or your body sitting or lying down. And then every time you get distracted, which will happen a million times, you just start again and again and again and again. And this is like a golf game with a million mulligans where you're, <laughs> the whole goal is to start over. Many people, when they start to meditate, and they notice how distractible they are, their ego tells them the story, or Tubby tells them the story of, like, you're a failed meditator. Deuces. You know, I'm out. Mm -hmm. Um, But in fact, the moment you notice how distractible you are, the moment you notice how wild your mind is, that is proof that you're meditating correctly. Because Mm -hmm. the whole game in in mindfulness meditation is to see how wild your mind is so that the wildness doesn't own you as much. You're getting familiar with Tubby. You're getting familiar with your anger, your sadness, your planning, your rushing, whatever. Because then when you're not meditating and you get hit by a big bolt of anger then you're better able to resist the shitty suggestions that the anger is offering up. (laughs) Like, I don't have to say something that's going to ruin the next 72 hours of my marriage. Or or I don't need to eat a whole sleeve of Oreos or whatever it is. What we're doing here is training a kind of self-awareness that allows you to respond wisely to things instead of reacting blindly. And that is not woo-woo. That is secular, simple, science-based exercise exercise for your brain and for your mind and i've been on this jag of you know evangelizing for meditation for the last six or seven years now and i've never explained it that way to anybody and had them say oh yeah yeah that sounds like bullshit It's just clearly not
2: (laughs) no what were some of the things that started happening in your life when you started a regular meditation practice that you could tell like this is working
3: I like to tell this story because it's it's actually a true story. Well, um, my wife is a very sweet doctor, very caring doctor, but likes to make fun of me, uh, which I respect and appreciate. Um, after I started meditating, I overheard her at a cocktail party telling one of our friends. Oh, yeah, Dan started meditating, and he's a little bit less of a shithead. And <laughs> that, that was actually a really interesting data point because I had not felt any benefits yet. But I would say this was very soon after I started meditating, so like mm-hmm. a week or two. But for me, I would say after about two, three weeks, I started to notice three big benefits. One was that I felt calmer. Mm-hmm. And I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that my meditation sessions were calm. My meditation sessions were a mess. It's like you're like trying to hold a live fish in your hands like you're I felt crazier even, you know, Um, because I was seeing some of the my anxiety and avarice more clearly. But the act of stepping out of the daily toppling forward that I do most of the day So like constantly crossing things off my to do list and hustling this meeting to the next. The act of just taking a few minutes. I started with like five minutes a day. It just made me feel calmer. Mm-hmm. The second big benefit was that it, and again, this is really backed by the science. It may, it gave me a better ability to focus because that's what you're doing here is like you're trying to focus on one thing, getting distracted, starting again, starting again, starting again, and that the science shows that like it changes the part of the brain associated with attention regulation. And the third thing is the biggest, which is that it it gave me what I keep talking about here, which is like this self awareness that is often called mindfulness which allows you to see what's happening between your ears at any given moment without necessarily taking the bait and acting on it.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: that is really a game-changing skill because we just walk around so much of our lives like just controlled by this malevolent puppeteer of, of tubby or, or just random thoughts. And once you see it, you can cut the strings. And it's mm-hmm. not going to work all the time. I mean, that's why I when I wrote my first book, I called it 10 percent happier because I was kind of trying to counter program against the over promising that I see in the shadier corners of the self-help world, where it right. seems like they're saying you can solve all of your problems through whatever the power of positive thinking. And I just that's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But while the 10 percent is kind of a joke. Now that I'm stuck with math jokes the rest <laughs> of my life and I hate math, um, uh What I will say is that it's like any good investment. It compounds annually. Mm -hmm. These are skills. Yeah. The ability to not be yanked around by your emotions, the ability to focus. These are are skills. These are not factory settings that are unalterable. And so for me, over 11 years, I just keep getting better at these. That does not mean I'm never a schmuck anymore. I'm definitely – if we brought my wife in here right now, you (laughs) get a laundry list of recent transgressions. But I'm less likely to screw up, and when I do screw up, I'm quicker to apologize.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, that's very true. Um, what does your meditation practice look like these days? Has it been tough to actually continue a meditation practice during this time?
3: So I will admit that there is one area in which I'm a bit of a mutant, which is that I am actually very disciplined, and this has actually been a problem for me because there are some areas where I've struggled with discipline,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and when I struggle with discipline, I really beat myself up. For example, one area where I've really struggled is um, I have a bit of a fraught relationship to food and body image and eating and things like that. And which is a weird thing to say because I'm a thin guy, but like I can overdo it with Oreos and get really mad at myself and go into a full spiral over that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects of myself... Criticism here is that I feel sloppy and undisciplined, mm-hmm. but there are areas in my life where like 11 years ago, I said I'm going to meditate every day and I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that people will resent me for that. So that's why I told the Oreo thing first. I, <laughs> it's not like I'm perfect, but... I am pretty disciplined, and so I went on an arc where I started with, like, five to five minutes a day, and then I went up to 10 minutes a day, and then after a year of that, I went up to 30 minutes a day, which I did for a few years. And then I went through a crazy period where I was doing two hours a day. Yeah. And then I realized that that was crazy um, <laughs> and cut down to an hour. And now I'm at a place where I try to do an hour every day, you know, and I, I don't do it all in one go most days, although today I did. But I'm I'm pretty relaxed about it now because I know that my practice is pretty solid. I've been at it for a minute and yeah. I go on meditation retreats once a year and like I'm pretty committed. I, so it's pretty well established. And so if I'm, if one day I only do 15 minutes, it's not like I'm going to f- fall off the wagon or lose right. all the mindfulness I've a crude. But I, 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 I sort of gently try to do an hour a day if I can. And I divide it up into little chunks throughout the day. And I try to do this thing that is very unusual for me, which is to be relaxed about it.
2: Right. I so relate to everything you just said. (laughs) I am so incredibly disciplined when I am focused on something, when I want something, I'm so disciplined. And then there's many other parts of my life where I can just like go nuts also. And I have that same inner dialogue of, oh my God, why, you know, why can't I be disciplined in this space? Mm -hmm. And I completely beat myself up about it.
3: You know what you do in those moments?
2: What? Pew,
4: pew. (laughs) <laughs> I like
2: that. Pew. Yes, it's so true. And I think a lot of people can relate. I think we all have some kind of discipline in our life in certain areas, and then others. I mean, maybe some of us have like extreme discipline. <laughs> and yes. I, I think, you know, there's that ambition that comes into that too. Mm-hmm. We can utilize it to its fullest, and then all of a sudden it just like crosses over that line of, I'm going to now use this to hurt myself. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I totally relate to that. Um, I was wondering, does your whole family meditate?
3: No. So I learned a very valuable lesson the hard way, which is (laughs) you shouldn't lecture people about meditation. In fact, what I've learned is you shouldn't lecture people about anything. Yeah. Um, So if somebody invites me on their podcast or TV show or whatever, I will come on and talk about meditation All day long, because I love talking about it. Right. But when I first started meditating, I started lecturing my wife about it. Uh, Unsurprisingly, that didn't go well. I I often think about this cartoon that I saw in The New Yorker a few years ago. It had two women having lunch, and one of them says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I'm already annoying. And uh, (laughs) that can happen to people who get really excited about meditation.
2: So true. What
3: I've learned is that it's best to keep your mouth shut And let people observe in you the benefits of your practice and then come to you and ask you about it, at which point you can say whatever the hell you want. But if you proselytize unsolicited, it's likely to backfire.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And my husband is... He kind of dabbles in and out of it. I say, "Hey, I'm going to go meditate." I'll invite him. Said, "Do you want to come?" And if sometimes it's a yes, sometimes it's mm-hmm. a no, and it's like, "Okay, cool." But I was very much like you when it starts to change you. Yes. You're like, "Holy shit! Like this is, this is changing my life. I want it yes. to change everyone yeah. else's too." Yes. <laughs> and yes. you, you can, you can so easily get into you. You've got to do this. You've got to do this, and people are like, "Can you please stop <laughs> talking about this thing?"
3: Yes, yes. So I'll give a talk and some. Man will come up, or some woman will come up, and they'll be with their spouse. And the primary person coming up to me will be like, "I, I, I, you changed my life. I'm so, so. I read your book, and now I meditate, and I can see the spouse is like, I'm so sick of hearing about this (laughs) asshole. And I got dragged to this talk tonight. (laughs) You know, I was doing that to my wife, and and so the best thing to do is what you just described. Is like, yeah, you're doing this thing. It's good for you. Your husband reaps the benefits of you being happier. And yeah, if you gently invite him and he wants to come, great. And if he doesn't, okay.
2: Yeah, that's I've definitely learned that also. I'd love to close out all my conversations with a little question about music. So I'm going to get you to sing like you mentioned (laughs) earlier. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I love, you know, music connects all of us. And it's something that's obviously a huge part of my life. And I love to hear what songs resonate with people. I just thought you could share. I call this the holy five. So it's five songs that maybe are influencing your life now or maybe have over your lifetime, just anything that resonates with you.
3: Okay, so I'm going to warn you in advance, none of these is a country song. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I, I've historically not had much interest in country, but then I met you, and I also met uh, Brett Eldridge. Do you know Brett? Yeah. Okay, so Brett oh, yeah. is also very into meditation. Oh, very cool. a very Very nice guy, and very into sort of like he's had some panic issues and be very open about that. Um, mm-hmm. And also our nanny, who's from Belize, is really into country music, so we I get love country music around the house now. <laughs> but none of these songs is going to be a country song. That's all right. I am really in, in into like kind of indie rock, and have been for since I was in high school. And I'm I constantly have an active playlist um, that I use for working out. And mm-hmm. so I just took a look at some of the songs that are on there right now, and these are all sort of like obscure indie rock bands. But here we go. Uh, one song is called "Close," and it's by an Australian band called Sweater Curse. Nice another, so, another song is called Lemon Mouth by an American band, I believe, called Tiger's Jaw.
4: Okay.
3: Different Universe by Direct Hit. Uh, A Different Kind of Life by Nation of Language. I think they're from Brooklyn and then this woman you might like because she's got a great great voice but also like a really clever songwriter her name is samia and this she wrote a song called fit in full so those are five
2: fit and full i like that that's awesome thank you for sharing Yeah. It's so interesting to hear what people are into because sometimes it matches like what you think of someone. And then other times you're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that at all. I definitely appreciate your choices. I'm going to go listen. (laughs) I'm going to go rock out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's good for running.
2: Very good. Very good. Thank you so much for coming on here and sharing yourself and all about meditation and and, and the inner critic. I I love that we dove into that because I think it's really important. So thank you so much.
3: My message for Tubby is that you're doing a great job as an interviewer.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. Good job, Tubby. (laughs) 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 Thank you. Thank you.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Liam.
2: Thank you, my loves, for joining us for this episode of Holy Human. Please share it with anyone you think might benefit from listening. And I would love to hear from you too. So please leave me a message and that wonderful five-star rating (laughs) wherever you get your podcasts. On our next Holy Human, you are going to meet a man who is honestly probably one of the kindest human beings that I know. And I can almost guarantee that he will help connect you with your more centered, more self-accepting, and truly lovable self best-selling author, and my dear friend, Matt Kahn. Listen and follow Holy Human on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: any disease you deserve a moment to yourself every single day and a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandys can give you that comforting pause (sighs) don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandys for a post errands pick pick-me-up this magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler elves so as life continues to fly by make the most of your me moment Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandy's.
4: Are you feeling overwhelmed by anxiety, struggling to find restful sleep, or plagued by a restless inability to focus?